Blog Talk Radio. Radio show for Sunday, the 12th of November, 2017. And um, JB, along with EJ on the ride, will be joined in about 15 minutes by our good friend Matthew Cerrone from Mets Blog. And he'll, of course, be along to talk about uh, not only the Mets offseason, but uh, during the season, he wrote a book. We'll be talking about that as well. And uh, EJ, as we get started, I, I think it's uh, worth uh, starting on a bit of a, the low note of the week. And that, of course, was the uh, passing of Toronto Blue Jay and Philly legend Roy Halladay at the far too young age of 40. Yeah, total tragedy in the world of Major League Baseball. Uh, I know as Mets fans, we didn't exactly have affinity for a guy who basically uh, was the leader of what was an amazing Phillies rotation that they had there for a few seasons. But by all accounts, Halladay was just, he was one of those good guys who just gets it. He, uh, frequently was posting pictures on his social media uh, regarding the youth baseball that he was involved in and uh, just a really, really good guy gone way too early. And I'll tell you, just uh, from a, from a baseball standpoint, there's probably, I'd say five guys who I definitely have seen over the past 10 to 20 years that I will never forget how filthy they were. And from a pitching standpoint, when he was at his best, he was the best. Yeah, I mean certainly the uh, the one thing that I always I always harken back on is uh, when I was a kid, uh, probably uh, it must have come I think it came out in 1984. Or so uh, Tom Seaver wrote a book uh, called The Art of Pitching. It still sits on my bookshelf about 10 feet from where I'm sitting right now. I can see the spine of it as I look over there, um, in which uh, he talked to, of course, you know, aka his ghostwriter, talked to you know Nolan Ryan, Steve Carlton, Mario Soto, and of course himself. Um, about the art of pitching. And ever since reading that book as a kid, I have, I have regarded pitching as artwork. And, you know, there's no doubt about it. Roy Halladay was an artist. He was an absolute artist on the mound. And, uh, you know, you, you think about the younger generations that, uh, that they'll be affected by, you know, his coaching uh, that he did with the youth. But, uh, you know, you kind of wish, you know, certainly that uh, this was a guy who could have been around longer to impart his knowledge on other people. But my goodness, you know, when he faced you, you hated him. When he didn't, he was fun to watch. Yeah, he didn't really pitch in what I now refer to as the GIF era, where uh, frequently if you're watching a ball game on Twitter and a pitcher does something stilty, it'll instantly be GIFed and posted to Twitter. If, if that was more popular, I'm pretty sure almost every game he pitched, you would have had something gifable because there, there were so many times where – he would break off some type of breaking ball and you would just sit there and say, that was absolutely unfair. That was filthy as it gets. And it, it really was, as you said, a work of art, a thing of beauty to behold when a, a guy could do that. So he really, I mean, it, it, that was a good generation that we had of pitchers during his, his run. And uh, like I said, I feel like he was at the head of the class. Yeah, absolutely, and it's just yeah, one of those one of those things. I feel like uh, you know we've now gone two straight years of losing amazing pitchers. Um, you know, one in the midst of his career, just beginning it in a lot of ways with Jose Fernandez, and this year one whose career it's like it's funny he's been out of the game a couple of years. So when they said he was only forty, I was I, I you, know, you, you forget that this that he had a lot of injuries, especially towards the end. Uh, because it's like guys younger than uh, certainly younger than I am by a couple of years, and he's been retired for four seasons. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see. I'm sure that there'll be an emotional push to get the Hall to waive their uh, their five year waiting period, although he's only one year short of it. I don't think anybody would be too angry, but this is a first ballot Hall of Famer in either way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I definitely think that that's as much of a no brainer as you can have. Uh, Obviously, there will have to be at least one malcontent who doesn't vote him in, just so we could continue. I, I can think charade. of who that would be too. <laughs> we can continue the charade of, uh, oh yeah, there's no such thing as unanimous first ballot Hall of Famer. Yeah, there is. It just there's a couple of uh, old curmudgeons who just 
just on principle alone think that they can't do it because Babe Ruth wasn't unanimous. I mean, give me a break. But he will get in first ballot, and it will be much deserved, and I'm sure it will be a very emotional ceremony. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, of course, as we kind of uh, turn the page here, we're thinking about the Philly year. One of the bigger developments in the past few days has been the Phillies announcing their manager of Gabe Kaplan. Um, and uh, seemingly things seem to have settled down in Atlanta. So you, you go into a year where Don Manningly is now the senior manager in the NL East. Uh, you've got several new managers. And, you know, I, I feel like uh, looking at it, I, I feel like uh, even even though the, the, uh, the polish has worn off to an extent on the conference of a few weeks ago, I feel like we still got the best guy of the group uh, with Mickey Calloway. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Uh, you're right about Atlanta. That, that didn't turn out to be the dumpster fire that we thought it was going to be. I mean, things got bad down there, but I feel like they did manage to kind of stabilize the ship a little bit here. So uh, that was actually a decent job by them. Uh, Mattingly, I, I actually, uh, if you had asked me, Earlier in the year, if he was going to be the most tenured manager in the NL East, I would have laughed, but that is the case now. He's a solid manager. I, I actually really like Don Mattingly. Uh, I've had the privilege of uh, meeting him a couple times and working with him for a few hours, and he's just a really good guy. But I don't think he's the manager that Mickey Calloway is going to be. I think Mickey Calloway is going to be a very, very good technical in-game manager and a, and a good manager of uh, personalities in the clubhouse. So I, I agree with you. I feel like the Mets, when it comes to a, a managerial and a coaching staff, I feel like the Mets are, uh, are really ab- above the rest of the NL East and, and a lot of Major League Baseball. I feel like they've done a very good job putting together this staff. Yeah, and I think, too, for me, the big, the big thing is when you look at these managerial changes, uh, when you look at Alex Cora in Boston, that has the potential to be an upgrade for that. I mean, that yep. definitely has potential to be one. Uh, Gabe Kapler, I mean, I don't think he can go much further down than you were going or, with Pete McCannon, quite honestly. Uh, I just was not a fan of his, him as a manager, but I would be of any village, but you know what I mean. Um, I feel like that's a potential upgrade. A lot of these other things, I, I, don't, I think Martinez is a really good hire in D.C. for them uh, in the sense that you know, what was available, I think he's a good fit. He's a good guy. I think he's a good manager. I don't think he's an upgrade from Dusty Baker. At the very least, uh, you know, I, I, he, you know, he, he would be even up with him. But I don't think he's that guy that takes you to the next level in what, mind you, is a one-year window for the Washington Nationals. It is a one-year window. And traditionally speaking, managerial changes, it, it is one step back to take steps forward just usually take more than a year. I mean, you know, and sorry, Mets fans, that kind of applies to us to an extent as well. Uh, but, um, you know, it just takes a while for that system to work in for the, you know, the, the right guys to be behind the right manager, et cetera. But uh, the, um, the reality of it is, is, uh, you know, you, you look just a little bit North of the, you know, and there's some very interesting names, the Bronx being tossed around, but I'm sorry. I don't see one there that is guaranteed upgrade over Joe Girardi. No, and I feel in both the, the – well, Washington, I don't even feel they made a parallel move. I do feel that they made a downgrade. And I guess if you're a Yankees fan right now and you're the Yankees front office, really your ceiling right now would be to make a parallel move. I don't think you can make an upgrade over Joe Girardi. So uh, I really I, – I very much dislike the Yankees letting Girardi go. I thought uh, he did an amazing job this year. This was, again, supposed to be the teardown or build-up year for the Yanks, and – to go as far as they did in the postseason, that's a testament to a great manager. So I'm really not sure what the Yanks are hoping to accomplish uh, by getting rid of Girardi. And, I, I mean, honestly, I, I personally feel that this was a, a lot of issues between the front office and Girardi. Uh, there's a little bit of sniping in the press back and forth over the past couple seasons. And, uh, honestly, I wouldn't be at all surprised to find that, even though they're calling it a termination, that this might have been a mutual move because Girardi was – was done and he's so highly regarded that you know he will get another job in baseball if not this year then definitely next year yeah i th- i think he's holding out for next year i think you'll see him um i think you'll see him for summer i think it's entirely possible things don't work out tremendously great between uh and derek and uh 
down in Miami that you could see a uh, swap out of uh, Yankee legends, if you were down there. Um, but um, the, you know, it's interesting watching the managerial shuffle and still feeling really good about where we landed in this whole thing. And uh, one of the big things since the last show we did, is, uh, we basically have, as far as we can tell, a complete coaching staff at this. Yeah, they, we were, uh, last time we spoke, it was pretty much we knew Callaway and that was it. And uh, instead, the Mets, they, they went out and they staffed up quickly. They staffed up well. Uh, we speculated about a pitching coach maybe being a, a first-timer who Callaway had ties with, and that's exactly what they got. And I'm perfectly fine with that because, by all accounts, Mickey Callaway was a great pitching coach. So why wouldn't I want anyone who uh, was mentored by him? And, you know, it's funny. In the NFL, you always talk about the coaching tree. Well, I do the same thing in, when it comes to – coaching staffs in major league baseball. I like to see if the guy's a first time guy who were his mentors. And I'm perfectly comfortable with, uh, with Callaway being that mentor role. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and, and you know, you, you look at the various things, you, you know, you've got some returnees, you've got some new people in the place. Uh, and I feel pretty good about, uh, overall where this, where this, uh, coaching staff is going to be. And, uh, you know, the uh, people are complaining because it lacks a, you know, a, uh, a, a met feel to it, if you will. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, sentimentality only gets you so far in the pennant race. Yeah. The only time I was really caring about it, if the guy had met ties was when it came to the managerial wall. Uh, obviously we all had our favorites based on their time with the Mets, but I think no one's going to be moaning the fact that we got what could potentially be a great manager, even though he was never in the Mets system. Uh, when it comes to the coaching staff, I don't care where the ties lie. I just want them to have come up under a really good tutelage and I want them to, to be good at their jobs. I don't care where they came from. Uh, I don't care where their ties are. I just like to think that we have a very competent staff. And when you look around to all major league experts, everybody's wanting the job that the Mets did in assembling this staff, that they have a very competent, uh, they've got a nice uh, mixture of uh, expertise and experience versus uh, some new guys getting a shot, and I really like it. When I look at it up and down, I saw it posted on Twitter the other day, and there wasn't a single guy who I was like, oh, I would have liked this guy instead of that guy. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, there's I have not had any any uh, pangs of buyer remorse or even a situation where somebody we let go got somewhere. I mean, you know, I'm happy for Ken Worthen that he that managed to get another gig outside the Met organization. But it's an assistant pitching coach position. Uh, you know, he's not going to be not going to be the pitching coach that beats us in the World Series, saying we're making it. But you, you get what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's you definitely hope that guys who have given their service to your team go still manage to have a gig once the the time comes to an end. And I think we're all in agreement that it was a good time to part ways with Dan Worthen. I guess the the pitching staff doesn't exactly agree, but I'm sure once they settle in in February, they'll. Uh, we'll all get on the same page where they need to be. So I'm glad that Worthen did get a job. Like you said, I think a lot of these guys, even a guy like Dusty Baker, I actually heard, uh, heard some rumblings about him as a potential bench coach. And yeah, I think that's kind of what may happen in some scenarios when you've got, uh, when you've got prominent uh, managers and coaches who are elected on their team, that the, the next job might not always be the same role that they were currently in. So uh, it, it's good to see Dan, uh, settled in somewhere, and uh, I definitely wish him nothing but the best. He was, a, by all accounts, he was a solid pitching coach in his time here. We saw some pretty amazing young studs come up on his watch, and obviously they felt a, a, a deep loyalty to him, which is a, a testament to his character. You know, I think the only thing that kind of stung, obviously, you know, the, uh, the, the national snagging up uh, Kevin Long, uh, uh, and back together with Daniel Murphy. Well, we know what they did together. Um, and then uh, our, our our old friend Chip Hale also winding up over there as uh, as bench coach. So I mean, those on a little bit, but uh, you know, overall, at the end of the day, I, you know, when you're when you're reminding on camp, as it were, uh, you know, I'm pretty good about the the staff the Mets have put together, and uh, I think it'll be interesting next off season depending on how the Mets do or, or perhaps the season afterwards. Is you know, the Mets new coach Gary Sarcina is the type of guy, you know, I, I think he's the manager aspirations a managerial prospect uh so be interested to see uh how long we have him with it. not because he won't be a great bench coach or or whatnot but because uh, somebody may come a call it as soon as next season for him yeah that's been speculated and i wouldn't be surprised 
Um, good to have him. <laughs> if, he, if he gets the guy right before he becomes the guy, not a bad situation to be in. So we'll, uh, we'll definitely watch how, uh, how this season goes for him and, and what prospects might be out there for him moving beyond this year. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly there are a lot of prospects that, uh, you know, a lot of things, a lot of uh, things that will be interesting to see. And uh, one of the, uh, one of the rites of passage of the, the kind of, it's called the, apart from free agency filing, really the kind of kickoff days of the, uh, of the season is of course the uh, DM meetings. And I wanted to bring in our good friend, uh, Matt, Thrown for blog to just kind of let's t- to talk about not only about the offseason, uh, you know, I've been meaning to have him on for a long time. He had a, a fantastic look out, uh, the New York Mets fan bucket list. We'll talk about that in a bit, but I wanted to start and talk about the offseason. And, uh, you know, Matthew, first of all, always a pleasure, my friend. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, and, and let's let's start. We're talking about, of course, the managerial uh, shifts and the the coaching staff coming together. Talk about a little bit uh, about your feeling so far about what uh, what Sam is putting together uh, off the field, as it were, for 2018. Uh, for off the field, you said. Is that for man, you know, manager and coaching staff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I. Well, it's, you know, first off, it's hard to know, right? Because we never met any of these guys, and we don't necessarily know exactly what Sandy Alderson is trying to fill. And I think ultimately, you know, the goal is that he has a group of people that work well together, that keep an eye on the players, that work well with the front office, and all that. And so, like, if they if they feel like these are the right people, then you got to let it play out. Personally, just knowing what I've heard about some of these guys, particularly uh, Callaway and um, you know, the, the, I think with him, the, 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 the real takeaway, the one thing that I heard, and cause I don't want to regurgitate everything we people have said about him, but the one thing that I've heard that I really, really am intrigued by and sort of excited about based on what, you know, I think, I think we all would agree was the biggest problem last year, which was injuries uh, specifically to the pitching staff because he played recently enough, you know, more so than say Dan Worthen, um, and given that Callaway has, has walked those shoes and he's, he had Tommy John surgery, he understands, you know, how uh, data and evidence and analytics sort of enter the game, uh, not just as a coach, but also as a player, because that was about the time he was, he was still in the league. And so I think because he brings that experience to these guys, when somebody like Steven Matz or whoever is on the mound and kind of, you know, ah, my elbow feels like this, like, I feel like Callaway given his experience, we'll be able to relate to that more. And I heard that from people in Cleveland, that the pitchers there really appreciated that. Um, you know, like I said, it's just they're talking the same language, and it's no disrespect to Dan Worthen or even Terry Collins or uh, that generation of guys. But, you know, they come from an era where, you know, you mowed the lawns in the off season to keep in shape and, and earn extra money. Like, it is not the same game. It's not the same uh, way. And so – I think it's important to have people in those positions that understand this experience of these guys and they can hear what they're saying and, and, and help that communication process and just kind of help, you know, in terms of how everybody's feeling and, and why. I just think that's important. And I like that they have sort of a younger staff, a guy like Callaway that has that experience. I just, to me, that's the thing that is most compelling and really interesting from a story point of view, but also, you know, because I think it'll help. I think it'll help the performance and, you know, maybe how they, get to injuries and deal with them. Sorry for the long answer. That was, but I mean, that, that's the whole answer. <laughs> oh, no problem. It's great to have you back on with us, Matt. Uh, you know, clearly uh, I've I, talked about that before and written about it, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I think one of the, my favorite things during the Terry Collins era that you had posted was down in spring training one here, you just posted a, a quick video of him hustling from field to field and running around yeah. the amount of energy that he brought to, to the, his role as manager and I think based on his initial press conference, Mets fans who got really comfortable with that in Perry uh, are going to be seeing more of the same from Mickey. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we'll see when we get down there. I'm, you know, I've never – this will be my first, obviously, experience. Well, I mean, I guess Willie to a certain extent. I was going to say first experience with a new manager that's never done it before. Um, and I, I suppose Willie Randolph uh, had that. But I, I, I think I was unfamiliar with camp life you know, at that point, because I was new to covering the team in person that way, um, you know, so it, was, it would have been new and different to me no matter what. 
with Callaway, you know, I, I think it will be interesting to compare and see sort of how they go about it. You know, the, the video you mentioned with, with uh, Terry, that was his first camp. And going from the Willie Jerry Manual, which was very um, disciplined and orderly and, you know, wasn't, um, you know, the energy was just different. Uh, going from that into Terry Collins, it was distinct. It was stark because, I mean, he just, you know, he was pushing everybody and pushing everybody. And it was, you know, it was hustle and move and run. And he was sort of the example of it. And I, that was, you know, I, that was his first camp. So it makes sense. And, it, you know, it changed over time, especially as the, the team matured and, and some of the, the rookies became veterans. And so they start to shape how the camp gets handled. So this time around with, with Callaway, I'm interested, interested to see, cause like, you know, for all the David Wright, there is, you know, Jacob DeGrom's a veteran and Yuri Spinelli is a veteran. And like these guys, you know, a lot, Wilmer Flores, you know, all these guys have been around for a while and they, have been there a lot longer than Callaway. So, like, it'll, I'm curious to see how sort of their, you know, we think of DeGrom and we think of some of these guys still young, but, like, they've been through this. And I'm, I'm interested to see how they bring their sort of experience and needs and expertise and everything, you know, from being in Port St. Lucie and how they sort of bring that into Callaway and how he adjusts to that. Like, I think we just assume that, like, how it's going to be his camp. You know, but he's got some guys there that have been around. And they call that place home. And so I'm curious to see how that sort of comes together. Yeah, I mean, a guy's first camp, obviously, the importance for him, I guess, would try to be winning over the veterans as quickly as possible. And sure. as the head coach, that's, a, that's his job. Pitching coach, he has the same kind of responsibility. And how do you feel that they have to manage this given that this staff at the time of it was being speculated that Dan Worthen was going to be let go. It sounds like the staff, I won't say they had a revolution, but it sounded like the staff definitely weren't the happiest that they were losing a pitching coach who they'd gotten familiar with over the years. So where does that fall to the, the manager particularly to kind of get them settled in with a new pitching coach? All of that is important. Um, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. You know, it's interesting. They, if you think about it, though, I mean, Worthen's all they've ever known. Yep. You know, in the big leagues, for the, so uh, you know, it's understand. And he and he is a very fatherly, you know, just sort of wisdom. And you know, it's I, so it's understandable that they would they would take to that and, and think that is the experience. That's what they know. That that, but always different. He's going to have a different deal, and like I was going to have his thing, and like they're going to bring to they're going to bring in. Uh, something new and something different. And I think maybe at first, you know, there's it's like anything in life, like you're uncomfortable with the change, but then I think once they get into it and they realize the benefit this has to these guys for their careers, especially somebody like Harvey in particular, you know, to be able to, you know, do that and sort of ha- and, and, and get all that and sort of get inspired by it. I, I think they'll, I think they're going to take to it. I think it'll, you'll hear them talking, you know, Callaway speak or whatever that's going to be. Uh, very quickly, and I, I think the, the work and stuff, it'll be more appreciation, uh, you know, the way you sort of appreciate what your parents did when they were raising you, but, you know, it's time for them to sort of move on and uh, to, to be the, the pitchers they, they think they can be and everybody thinks they can be, and I, I, my hunch is that connecting with somebody that has done it in Kansas, uh, Kansas City, done it in Cleveland, these are, you know, terrific staffs. So, like, I think once all that comes together for these guys, and there was Syndergaard, Harvey, those, they're going to be – I think the lights are going to go on and they're going to be incredibly motivated and, and sort of refreshed. That's my hope. But I also think that is typical of this scenario. And so hopefully it plays out that way. You kind of try, it's kind of the whole thing is that, you know, you don't always get what you want, but you get what you need. And I kind of look at that <laughs> as that's what the change is because yeah, of exactly yeah. what you said. Well, and they're in an interesting spot. Like I, Harvey to me, it, that his look, put aside wins, losses, all the stuff the storyline of Matt Harvey is going to be fascinating to me this year. Like it's a really interesting, it really captures a lot of what's going on in baseball. Um, you know, in terms of how they're approaching pitching and free agency and arbitrary, there's just so many parts to his story that I think are going to be interesting. Like he's obviously got injury issues. He's coming back from two really major, major injuries. And, you know, he's at a point in his career where, he can't worry about innings limits or pitch counts or, I mean, he's got to, he needs to do as much as he can, as great as he can to make up for a lot of lost time and take advantage of all these things that baseball offers. And so I'm really interested to see how he, what is essentially probably the last 
full year of his uh, tenure with the Mets and representing sort of the Terry Collins uh, era, so to speak, combining with the first year of Callaway and what we hope is many, many, many uh, going forward. How Harvey adjusts to that and like how he sort of integrates into all those things, like to me is just an amazing story um, that I'm really interested to see play out. In that regard, how much, if any, credence are you given to this uh, report that basically two through five in the rotation will not be allowed to go past uh, two times through a lineup in a given game? And if you do give that a decent amount of credence, how important is this offseason for Sandy Alderson regarding strengthening that bullpen? So this conversation that you and I are having right here is happening in 29 other uh, markets because it's every team. <laughs> it's not just the Mets. Like I've been hearing this since the summer. Um, there's one team in, that I have a, a contact with uh, that referred to it initially as Project 15, which is because you know these starting pitchers you can really only sort of count on them for those first 15 outs. That next, you know, into the sixth in that it's gonna get tricky. And then if they get into that third time through the rotation, it's you know all bets are off. Every team has recognized that. Um, and there are, I think the difference between recognizing it a few years ago or whatever and now is that they're actually just taking it for reality and fact and, like, why fight it? And so, yeah, it's the Mets because that's where the report came out. We're Mets fans, and, and we're, this is what we do. But I'm telling you, every, every other team is doing the same thing, and this is why that, you know, veteran, proven, uh, you know, free agent reliever, whether it's Shaw or Gregors, they are in such a great spot. And like you see in the numbers, Addison Reed, even Shaw from the Mets for all we know, could, you know, could potentially get a four-year deal. I mean, this is, they're, they're going to get lengths in contracts bigger, bigger than guys hitting 30 and 40 home runs. Because I think every team recognizes in order to pull this off with the starting pitchers, we, we got to have every night four relievers, three to four relievers that are fresh, at least one or two of which can throw multiple innings. And so the value on these guys is just, it's, it's sky high. It's why you saw Sandy Alderson last summer trade for all of these relievers. I don't know, maybe one of them can be that guy. And if it is, then all of those trades are worth it to the extent that they, maybe they develop Andrew Miller, who knows? So like that, that's where the game is right now. I mean, it's a great day to be a, a late game reliever. That's for sure. Well, that was certainly one of the things that, you know, it's, it, I always find that it's, it's always, you know, we, we see the reaction specifically, of course, on sports radio and, and, and social media to some of the things that the Mets do and with, the, with the myopic view that some people have on the team that this is, this is something that's going on sport-wide. This is something that's going on as a major trend. As, as we see with these pitchers, you know, they have the statistics, they have the data, they know well, what's going on. Yeah. I'm just to interrupt you just uh, to point now, out. Now the only for, piece of data that I question that seems to be out there these days is will cutting your hair make your fastball go faster? <laughs> well, they're not going to hand you over the playbook, right? Like this specific <laughs> thing leaked. I mean, but here, here's, here's how you know. Here's evidence that it's the whole league, that it's not just the Mets. Like if you need a reason, the Mets alone do not spend nearly enough money to change the entire uh, reliever market. Like, they're all going to get big-time deals from a lot of teams. That's not just because the Mets decided that they needed to start using, you know, an extra reliever every night. Like, it's because it's, it's the league. I mean, it's supply and demand, and the Mets are just one of those teams that are demanding it. Um, and you're right, for myopic purposes, like, we focus on that. But it's, it's a really interesting shift. Um, you know, the other thing that's shifting, not to, not to pivot here for you, but just to throw it in, the, the other thing, uh, and it's just so funny how cyclical all this stuff is, like now you're seeing a little bit of a move towards maybe we need some, you know, finesse pitchers, some guys that can nibble the strike zone because it's so, you know, malleable lately. And, you know, everybody's fastball and power and maybe we should get a ground ball pitcher. And, like, suddenly we're, we're shifting back a little bit, and that's going to happen. Um, and so it's just those markets are fascinating. And believe me, it's, it's not just the Mets that want these things. Yeah, of course. It wouldn't, as we talk about bringing in talent in the off season and what the Mets need to do and how you know the new focus on the bullpens and whatnot, no discussion about the off season would be complete, of course, without you know jumping into our accounting degrees that we need to have as that band <laughs> yeah. talking about the finances. Where where do you see this team is at, and realistically, 
what can they do and prioritizing what little they have. Yeah, on the on the payroll stuff, I was just it's it's so funny how it, it works. It's an issue at times. It's not at others. It's it's and it's so not just isolated to the Mets. Like every team has a budget, and they sort of stick to roughly the same percentage of revenue. And the Mets are really no different. It's just for whatever reason, and I, and I think it's a lot of times just the way things play out, um, and the stuff that we learn from you know by way of the beat reporters, and you know it's. I mean. I, Obviously, I would prefer they spend, you know, significantly more than they do. And I, and I think actually you need to spend a little bit more to at least guarantee yourself the opportunity to compete every year. I mean, you can get lucky or you can spend $80 million and get to the playoffs. Obviously, that's going to happen. But, like, you know, the, the 150s, 160s, 170s, you're, you're going to be in the conversation of, of the postseason. It's going to be hard to really mess that up. So I'd like to see the Mets get into that spot, but like percentage wise, they're roughly in line with every other team's percentage of revenue. Like they all kind of spend the same thing based on, you know, the, that particular number. And it just is what it is. Now you get a team like last year with the Mets where Sandy Alderson apparently got them to go a little bit over budget, um, you know, enough that I guess, and, and admittedly I'm one who going into spring training or leaving spring training talk, they did a great job. Like I thought the team was going to be really good. And then they don't, and then he – and I think this is where some fans take issue and where I, I know I do. You know, why are we in the position – why are the – I shouldn't say we. Why are they in a position to have to midsummer pay back that? Like, so now Alderson has to sort of pay back into, you know, the borrow funds by trading guys for not a whole lot. Like, if they had eaten some of those contracts because ownership and – you know, as a group, they realize, well, you know what? We committed this number. We'll just stick to it. And the flip side will be that we acquire better talent and trade. That, you know, to me, at the very least, you know, it's the difference of, I mean, what are we, what are we talking about with Granderson and those guys that were dealt? Maybe $5 million bucks. You know, so, like, we're not – it's yeah. not like – it's not, you know, it's not like they went, you know, like he doubled payroll and he had – like, I get that. This is like – I don't understand. So, like, the, now – maybe the difference in prospects doesn't matter. And, and I, you know, maybe they know that. And so that's how that was handled. But it just seems to me that, you know, had they paid for X, Y, Z, they might've gotten those extra players from the Yankees or who are offering for Bruce. Like, I don't know that, that to me, it's not so much the, the, the larger number because I think you can win in that 150, 140, 150, 160 range. It's the other things that get handled that I think there's benefit on the other side, you know, anyway, so, and now you lost me because I'm, I'm writing about payroll. So what was the second part of that question, actually? Well, as far as going into the offseason, it's just what, an what easy they topic, you know what I mean? Like... Yeah. <laughs> it is a rabbit hole, I admit it. The payroll is a rabbit hole. Yeah. So I guess, you know, with, with what little they have, how, how would you prioritize it? And what do you see them doing at this point? Well, the reports are, and I've kind of heard this myself, um, you know, somewhere in that 30, 40 million range of, of spending money, which would put them with all the guarantees they have for next year and arbitration, et cetera, probably, um, you know, $140 million payroll as opposed to last year, which was started at 155. Um, you know, so if you're talking 30, 40, I don't know, I've written about this a few times the last couple couple days on Metzbog. It's so difficult to predict because they've got Conforto who can play right and center and they've got Cabrera and Flores who can play second, short, and third. You don't know what the deal is with right. And as I've written about and other people have as well, that, you know, there's not a, a full hundred percent commitment to Dominic Smith. So, I mean, you've got the, the infields and the fact that Conforto can play multiple position gives you different options in terms of how you deal with, do we sign this guy for that much or that one for the other? Um, so I don't really, it's hard to predict like what they can do. I, I know that they are looking for, and I think I would agree with this. You know, I think that uh, Todd Frazier, Eduardo Nunez, I think makes sense because they can play first, um, third cover kind of, you know, Nunez can play second, Frazier can play third. Like they can kind of cover some other stuff. And then I would go for, like, if I can get one of them, I would just try and get the best bat I can find, uh, for the outfield, um, I like the idea of Lorenzo Cain just because he can play right probably in a few years. Um, and I think he's sort of in that $10, 15000000 million a year player and how that 
Castillo will go down. J.D. Martinez is going to be too much. I get that the bullpen is tempting and it's important, but I don't know. I want the hitter because I don't trust that everybody in the lineup is going to stay healthy. So, you know, if they put themselves in a position like they were last year and just do a Frazier and maybe trade for a D. Gordon and Lagares is your center fielder and Conforto's in right, you know, you're one injury away again. Cespedes goes down and then it's going to be the same issue all over again. Um, I just think they need that other heavyweight, that other heavyweight hitter. And I would actually do it at the expense of um, signing the reliever. You know, the better, the better, even though everything I said earlier about meeting the relief pitchers, personally, I I would take a shot because you've got all these minor league guys, pitchers that you got, you know, you can trade for pitching. It's always there in the summer. I just, but that big bopper, I just think they need it as protection. You know, if you could tell me Wright's going to be healthy and he's going to hit 25 home runs, which I highly, you know, I'm skeptical of, I I want the hitter, you know, and I, I don't know about JD Martinez and I don't know who else is out there. It's hard to kind of, you know, factor, but, Logan Morrison, maybe take a shot. Um, I just think they need those homers, given the way the league is. Well, I think, and I, I think you, know, you talk about injuries, and you know, we, we always think immediately to the pitchers, the pitchers, the pitchers, because I mean, obviously that was such a glaring issue this year. But you, you know, of course, you, you can't gloss over the fact that you know he says he's changing his conditioning, but Cespedes has an injury history. Uh, you've got uh, Ligaris with an injury history. You've got Brandon Nimmo with an injury history. And you've got Conforto coming back. Well, you don't know what you're getting when he's coming back off this off this dislocated shoulder. You know, what, uh, it's certainly a possible reoccurring injury that, that uh, you know, there are rumors that have happened to him before during his amateur career. But uh, the, the reality mm-hmm. of it is you have a couple of guys that you just absolutely cannot pencil in for 162 games with confidence. It, right. And Conforto's that, that, I mean, that's, it's just, it's, it's massive because he probably will be able to play, you know, 160 games if he wants. Like, I think he'll be back in time. I mean, if it's, if it's April, okay. But I think he'll be, but it's, you know, he's coming back from that. It's a big injury it's surgery. Who knows how he'll react. And like to me, he's so vital. I, I mean, I think we'd all agree. Um, and again, the fact that he plays center and right, he can do a couple different things. Um, you know, and he's your all-star. He's, you know, he's the, he, he's, he's that guy. Like he's, he's that star. And like, I just think if he doesn't come back, it's like losing Syndergaard for the year or something. Like, I just feel like on the offensive side, almost more than Cespedes, just because of what he sort of represents. Um, and I don't know. You just don't know. He, he's, he's a tricky one. Um, but I think it comes down to the communication thing again. You know, I come back to, you know, they, they, and I can have Ray Ramirez. I, my understanding was that the, the issue really was sort of a communication protocol thing. And while I don't blame, I don't expect the role that Ray Ramirez had to be sort of a magician, I think his job is really more of a coordinator than, um, you know, somebody that's sort of setting the protocols or the training regiments and all those things. I mean, I think his real, his main job, just like Herps before, before that, um, you know, is to sort of just make sure everybody is doing what they're supposed to, when they're doing it, et cetera. And I think he sort of took on the role of more hands-on. And I don't know that they had that coordinator position. And, you know, Jim Malone had it for a while. Um, and I just think they need to bring that person back. So whoever they, however they replace the staff, I think they need that other set of eyes and again, like I mentioned before with Callaway, I feel like with him played recently and sort of having that experience, I think with that sort of coordinate, I don't know what your medical coordinator, maybe it's a good position uh, name in concert with Callaway, you know, I think they can communicate with these players enough to head things off before they become an issue and, you know, deal with things in a, in a proper way and communicate to the front office so that they're making, you know, roster decisions properly. And I think when all that stuff is sort of working well, then the injuries will go down. And I think losing these guys, because it's not even just the 15-day or the 10-day DL. It's the, as you know, he's on the roster, but he doesn't play for five days. And you can't come off the bench. And now we're playing shorts. And then he's on the DL, and he comes back too soon, and he's back on the Like, that's the issue. Injuries are going to happen. But, you know, the sort of procedural how it impacts the roster and the win and loss column is something totally different. And that, if, if they can improve that, 
I think they'll be in significantly better shape. I mean, the amount of days they carried Cespedes and Cabrera and all these guys on the bench not doing anything is equally as harmful as losing so-and-so for three starts. And, you know, that has to be addressed, and hopefully with a new coaching staff and, you know, different training staff and different protocols, and, you know, that'll improve. And so you might lose so-and-so for a month or so, but at least everybody else on the roster is playing and healthy. Like, that is really the most important part. I think they're in better shape to make that happen this year. One of the things you mentioned training that I'm keeping an eye on that I think was a very interesting hire, the Seattle Mariners a few weeks ago, uh, hired a director of high performance to basically yeah. oversee all physical and mental um, training and uh, to be that communicator. And uh, they, they hired a doctor to do this. And it seems like mm-hmm. uh, th- this is exactly the deal with what we've just been talking about. Uh, it's different. It, it's, it's um, you know, this falls more under the meditation, breathing techniques, um, sort of mental approach. Uh, it's funny. I do, in addition to Methbog, I do a lot of uh, different consulting work. And, and somebody I'm working with is this uh, gentleman, Dr. Eric Marginow, who is one of the original sports psychologists. And now he, you know, we're trying to sort of redevelop what he's doing as, as, as a client of mine. And the terminology is, you know, mental toughness that's the language that really sort of resonates with the modern player and front offices. And, you know, it's still sports psychology, but worded that way, it takes on a different tone. And so you see a lot of that, you know, mental skills. I think the Mets this past couple of years had a mental skills coach, um, you know, high performance, whatever you want to call it. You know, the Mets a couple of years ago had a group of Navy SEALs come in and talk with them about uh, breeding techniques you know, the techniques that these guys would use, you know, on, on a mark, you know, when they're sort of right, when you have to slow your breath down to like 40 beats per minute or some ridiculous thing to keep yourself still, like they would teach those techniques and Conforto was doing it and right, um, you know, and a lot of these guys and, and that approach, it's sort of like the physical counter to sort of the statistical revolution, I think, is sort of this mental focus because unlike football, um, even basketball to a certain extent. I mean, so much of baseball is mental. And it's not just mental second-guessing chess match with the opposition. It's dealing with the fact that the bulk, especially as a hitter, the bulk of your career is failing. And how do you sort of, you know, get your head around that and, and you know, deal with it day-to-day and the closer that blows the same, like all that stuff, like it's like the other, the counterpoint, right? We have all these statistics and everything that can tell us, that can predict what's going to happen, you know, on the field. But this other thing is sort of helping these people, you know, get their act together going forward. You know, mental toughness in and of itself, just as an aside, like I've heard this from a lot of pitching coaches, Rick Peterson in particular, you know, it's not so much gritty and buckling down and, and sort of that that's not the toughness they're talking they're talking about the ability to separate from emotional and intellectual so you know you know uh, you know you're getting it's it's you know five four and it's game six of the world series and you're jake Degrom and they're rocking you it's the ability to not get angry about this and be mad and, and feel pressure and stress being able to step back from that and then tap into the intellectual part that says it's okay I have this pitch. There's a runner at first. I can get a ground ball. Like look at it intellectually. That, like that's what mental toughness is, according to these guys. You know, that's how they look at it. The ability to sort of detach from the emotional, get yourself centered, and then attack it from an intellectual point of view. And like, you know, if you think about it from a closure perspective, that makes sense. And so these pitching coaches believe in this. Callaway, that's a big. He buys into that. Um, you know, and so these other coaches that come in whether it's high performance or mental skills or mental toughness, like I said, like that's going to be their job. It's going to get more and more attention over these next few years. And to me, you know, as a personal like story and psychology and stuff, that's really interesting. And I'm eager to see how it plays out. Um, You know, but I think you're going to hear more about meditation and yoga and focus and all this stuff. And I I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, and so that's what these, these coaches are going to do. It's pretty interesting. And I like the fact that Callaway buys into it, by the way, just to bring it back specifically to the Mets. Like, this is sort of his discipline. You know, I, I, you know it's funny because I think it's, it's one of those things where you, you definitely have things where people don't, you know, when, when you're bringing them into new understanding. For example, a couple of years ago mm-hmm. when the Mets first started working with, with uh, 
Mike Barwis, uh, you know, obviously a controversial figure at this point, but everybody sure. wrote it off as we were sending players to fat camp, uh, <laughs> as if that was somehow a thing that we were doing uh, when it was yeah. literally nothing to do with being overweight. I think a lot of people, when they hear things like, you know, mental training and, and, and meditation mm-hmm. and yoga, think that basically we're bringing in a box full of Jobus from a major league when it's not the case at all. Well, I mean, I think that depends on your view of it. I mean, I deal with depression and anxiety and I've been going to therapy for years. And like, so for me, um, you know, I, I buy into it, but I can understand how certain people might not and might think it's a bunch of nonsense. And I mean, I remember, I mean, I, you know, I'm old enough think, you know, to, to remember back to like when Mike Piazza had the yoga person, it was like 2000, 2001, maybe, um, you know, and he got crushed for it. And like, they all do that now. It just, and so like at the time it was like, Oh my God, yoga, like, you know, he's this earthy hippie kind of thing. Like no, no, he got killed for it. And so like, this is, you know, it just, things change. Um, and so I think it depends on your viewpoint of it. Um, personally, I've talked to some of these guys on the Mets about this stuff, just cause again, it's an interest of mine and, um, you know, it's, I'm a fan. I want to see them better. So I got to talk to, you know, different people about, you know, experiences with psychology and depression and anxiety, all these different things um, from a baseball player perspective. And it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's on their minds. They just, uh, you know, there's still a stigma. There's a stigma in society in general, um, yeah, you know, in a, in, a, in a sort of ego, macho uh, kind of clubhouse environment. I, I can understand how, it would be a little, uh, you'd be a little nervous about it. I mean, I remember Mike Pelfrey and he was going through what he was going through and, you know, his, his therapist passed away in the middle of all that. Like it's understandable that if he has an issue, might have a negative reaction to that. And like, he got goofed on in in the media and by fans and some of his teammates and like, that's ridiculous. And so here we are, I don't know, it's 10 years later. Um, you know, and thankfully these aren't, consultants now i mean it's part of the team it's part of the fabric of the game and i maybe that just resembles uh i think Andy martino would tell us that that you know that that's uh, reflective of society and sports is that and blah 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 but uh and so maybe that's true but i mean either way as a fan of the game um you know whatever keeps these guys on the field as much as possible that's whatever you know and so like, if this is going to help and and people are buying into it great well, we're running short on time here, but I wanted to—I wanted to, you know, wait hard for a wide-ranging conversation. Talk. By the way, <laughs> yes, I know, and it's one of those I feel like we could <laughs> go on and probably do an entire show on it. Maybe at some point, actually, yeah. it would be really cool to do just that. Absolutely, I would do that. Yeah, uh, be cool. uh, so definitely, let's. Uh, you know, so sometimes it's tough to come up with topics in January, so I'm going to back pocket this and uh, <laughs> see what we can uh, do about revisiting right. it and, uh, in in the cold of winter and see if we can, because I, I do think it's—I mean. It's, yeah, I'm definitely good. a topic. Um, I, I took in three years of psychology in college. It's a fascination of mine too. So um, I would definitely be interested in revisiting that. But let's talk about the New York Met fans bucket list. Your first book came out yeah. earlier this year. Uh, talk a little bit about the book. I mean, obviously the, the title kind of gives it away. It's a spoiler, but um, talk a little <laughs> bit about uh, what made you decide to sit down and write a book and ta- and tackle this particular area. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've been approached a lot of different things over the years, but this was a, a series that Triumph had put out. They put one out for um, mostly beat writers that were doing them. And, and I've been talking to uh, my literary agent for a little while about different projects. And this book was, she had arranged uh, Mark Feinstein to do the Yankees, uh, Pete Abraham to do the Red Sox. And she was tasked with finding the Mets and she'd been reading Mets blog for years and said, you know, Hey, this is this opportunity. You, I think you should do this. Um, they're mostly beat writers, but you would be the only not beat writer to do it. So my approach was, okay, then let me sort of not just fill the, the, the list out at, from a fan's perspective, but use this as an opportunity to tell fan stories, things that I've experienced that have nothing to necessarily do with writing Mets blog or, or whatever, um, you know, that I don't typically get to write about on Mets blog because it's a news and rumors sort of 24 seven kind of cycle. Um, you know, what my experience was with, um, 
you know, watching game six in 1986 with, you know, my mother and my father and what that's like, that has no bearing on whether the Mets are going to sign JD Martinez or not. So like, it doesn't typically make its way onto Mets box. So putting all that together, it was like, all right, you know what, I'll do this. This, this sounds like a pretty cool thing. Like it's 800 word, 1500 word essays, like again, right up my alley. So let's do it. I had never written a book before, so um, I wasn't really prepared for everything that goes into it, and it was a lot more difficult than I thought. Um, my friend Meredith Perry, uh, who worked with me on Metsblog for a year and then uh, now runs uh, as an editor up at, at uh, Mass Live up in Massachusetts, she helped me kind of research it and organize it. And, like, I couldn't have done it without her, but um, it was really cool to sort of go through all these different experiences and kind of rank them out and – you know, just kind of relive a lot of things. And quite honestly, the opportunity to learn about stuff, like there were certain things about Tom Seaver and, you know, Casey Stengel and the Apple and just all kinds of random stuff that like, you know, again, to sort of dig into the next layer and kind of package it all together and capture what it means to be a sports fan or a Mets fan um, to people that maybe aren't sports fans, I think is the other audience that's interesting. Like I hear from, uh, wives that have read the book and they're like, oh, so that's why my husband is crazy because he's done all these things. Like, it's just to sort of understand Mets fandom and everything. Um, you know, to me, it was like, let's just do this. Like, I, I never get this opportunity and this will be fun. And hopefully, it tells a story of, of being a Mets fan. And they rank it as a, a bucket list. But to me, it's, you know, these little parts and pieces in the puzzle of, of sort of the Mets fan experience. Yeah, and I, th- I mean, I felt, I mean, I, I always look when I when I see bucket list books, and especially you, know, you and I are about the same age. I'll be forty three coming up in May, and uh, you know, I, I look open a book and I'm like, please, please let me have done at least half of these things because I don't have the time to do them all. <laughs> <laughs> and there definitely were a good amount of ones I had, uh, but the cool thing is that when you're reading through the ones that go. Well, I've been there, done that. It's like it's really cool to get another fan's perspective of what their experiences were like. Well, I think funny. that so I mean, for a lot of people that are that are look through the table of contents and go, yeah, done that, done that, done that. There's still plenty in the book. Right, and I tried to. It's funny that that's part of what I think has made Metzbog somewhat successful is that, you know, I think most people come to it looking just for validation of their opinion. You've got the news and then this other fan reaction that sort of tells you, ah, I'm off base or that's exactly what I thought. It just gives you a barometer. And so, like, you're right. It's funny you say that because with the book, I kind of felt the same thing. It was like, let me just sort of bring in all these you – know, look, it's not – you know, you're not getting – this isn't granular – it's not a history book. You know, it's, a, and it's, it's an experience book. And, it, you know, I think part of being a, a, a fan, but Mets fans in particular, is there's a community and you sort of – you don't feel alone in the crazy. And I think that's important with Mets fans, and I think that's why Mets Twitter is so popular, in, you know, in relation to other fan bases on Twitter. And it's, it's – I just think it's, it's – the, the team puts us through so much, and I say that with all due respect to them, that, you know, it's, it's not easy. And I think having sort of this person to connect with um, that lived through a lot of these sort of nooks and crannies and weird moments, you know, it's just – it's like, okay, it's, you know, I'm not alone. And I think that's important. And like, I know that's part of what's made Metsbox successful. And I wanted to kind of bring that to the book where if you read some of the other teams, it's very dry and sort of, you know, these things happened and these are the things you should do and that's it. And I'm trying to, not to make this too touchy feely, but you know, like, how did I feel about it? You know, and how did you feel about it? And let's, let's, you know, it's being a Mets fan is an experience. I don't need to tell you guys. And so like, it's, you know, that to me is what I hope the book sort of captured. And I think in Metsbog does to a certain extent, you know, and, and, and from viewpoint, the same thing. And I think that, you know, for me, uh, you know, I, you, you talk about the, the community of Met fans and it, you know, it started when, you know, when the online world kind of, kind of uh, began, but uh, you know, for someone like me who grew up in New York, grew up on Long Island. And then in the middle of the 1988 season, got pulled away from that and moved all the way up to Portland, Oregon, uh, where there were no Met fans and ESPN wasn't even covering baseball at that point. So it was, you're lucky, maybe if you're lucky, you get you get the team on the Saturday day game of the week on NBC uh, to be able to go from that to any time I want to talk about baseball, I can you know, hop on Twitter, hop on Facebook, and do it. Yeah, um, you know, it certainly well, that's uh, what the, that's, you know, yeah, that's becomes what a more personal experience again. 
that's what I'm relying a lot for, but that experience in general, I think, you know, I know a lot of games exactly. fans that I know, you know, growing up, even pre-internet, you know, it, it was just a different dynamic. Like I can recall going to, you know, those years in the late nineties, early two thousands where like to get playoff tickets or even opening day tickets, like you had to go and wait in the cattle call outside of a freezing cold, you know, Shea stadium in February or whatever it was literally like two in the morning, like, you, you know, you're going around the ballpark and that was a community, you know, like you looked at each other and it was like, yeah, man, I know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why we're doing this. It's crazy. Like, you know, that's, that's always been there. And like, I know a lot of Yankee fans that I talked to not, and I'm surrounded by mostly Yankee and Red Sox fans. Like they don't have that experience. They don't talk about Yankee fans that way. So like, I think it predates the internet to a certain extent. I think it's the second brother thing. And there's a lot of, you know, the, again, the LOL Mets of the eighties or the seventies or whatever it was. I, I think all of that stuff, it's, there's, there's a, we've been through a lot of just craziness that binds us in a way that maybe winning binds the Yankees. And to be honest with you, and I know this is ridiculous and like my Yankee fan fans are, would make fun of me for saying this. I actually kind of like the Mets version of this better. It's just, you know, it's, it's more communal. It's fun. We get the seven line and all these kind of crazy things and Mets blog and all this different stuff that kind of pops up. And like, I don't know. I just, I'd rather be a Mets fan with, with sort of this experience than the 20, whatever world series. And like, they don't remember any of the rosters because you know, they've tuned in in September. Like, it's just, I, I, I like this. And I think it predates, oh, yeah. like I said, the internet. And I think it, it's encapsulated on the internet. It's just, it's a, it's a fascinating group. And yeah, uh, it's ours. I mean, you know, it, it's funny, you know, you, when you think about it, when you talk about the different, you know, you talk about, you know, getting the tickets. I mean, I still remember, you know, first day there on sale. Oh. We didn't usually go down to Shea. We went down to A&S in Manhattan <laughs> to, for the Ticketron. <laughs> I yeah, mean, and yeah, that's right. thoroughly an 80s experience ours, right there. I mean, you know, and I still remember getting playoff tickets in 86. <laughs> it was so bad calling Ticketron over and it over was. and over, mind you, with a rotary dial phone that we had at the time. Oh, my God. But, yeah. uh, New York actually ran out of Busy uh, dial tones. You pick up the phone yeah. and there'd be no dial tone. I know. It's so That's ridiculous. how jammed up these phone lines were. It's ridiculous. It took six hours <laughs> on the phone to get our game five NLCS tickets. Five. Yeah, yeah. Five to six hours. <clears throat> it's so crazy. I mean, just as an example, the, the flip of that, a, a good story, a positive of it was on a game, whatever, the World Series in 2000. Uh, I was at work. My buddy was at work. We couldn't get tickets. He called Shea Stadium. And they were like, yeah, a couple credit card cancellations. Like, we have these face value if you want them. It's like, sold. We took them. You know, it's like, just that in and of itself, like, doesn't even make sense in today's world. It's crazy. No. Well, I appreciate it, man. I always appreciate our conversations. (laughs) I appreciate that. Yeah, it's always a good time. And like I said, we'll definitely do that in in January and uh, delve a little deeper on that topic because I do think we could do an entire show on it. Uh, tell folks, um, you know, of course, you know, the usual outlets as far as getting the book. Stores, Amazon.com. You can go to MatthewSerone.com slash book, and that'll take you to the Amazon page. Um, you can find everything there. Well, I appreciate it. Of course, obviously, MetsBlog.com is uh, where to find your writing, and, uh, of course, Twitter and all that as well. Matthew Cerrone, I like I said, I appreciate your time, and most of all, I appreciate your friendship. Absolutely. Um, and Let's do that thing in January. Sounds great. All right. Sounds good. Matthew Theron joining us on uh, the Happy Recap radio show, talking about the uh, offseason. Of course, the Mets fan bucket list is the, is the book, and uh, you can pick it up uh, at Amazon or any local bookstores um, throughout the tri-state area, I'm sure. Outside the tri-state area may be a little tougher. You may want to head online for that um, instead. But uh, certainly pick that up. And like I said, even if you look at the content and go, yeah, I've done half of that, well, read them up. It, it, they're cool stories, and that's the one thing I think you'll find in, amongst Met fans is anybody who has uh, been around, whether you've been around six months or six years or six decades, um, you know, the Mets are in their sixth decade at this point, um, you know, you, you have fans that have stories, and they love to tell their stories, and we love to hear everybody else's stories. And that's the cool thing about the community of Met fans is everybody's got a story, and everybody wants to tell their story, and everyone wants to hear the other person's story. So it's kind of a, a microcosm of society, I suppose, but that was a lot of fun. We appreciate uh, Matthew Cerrone joining us. Next week we have, have some fun. We have the general manager's meetings coming up. Uh, 
don't expect too much action. Maybe some table setting and some rumors to uh, burst out, but surprised if there's any anything major as far as signings or uh, trades. If there are for any reason, of course, we'll uh, schedule a special program, but certainly not expecting that. Next week, uh, we'll uh, endeavor to have one of the Mets beat reporters join us and see if we can talk about that uh, the GM uh, meetings. And also, um, we're going to talk about how to stay off boredom in the offseason. And one of my favorite ways to do that is a uh, baseball game, a simulator called OOTP. And we'll have a guest from uh, OOTP Developments to talk about the current edition, the upcoming edition as well as a uh, you know, for those armchair teams that think you can do better, this is your chance to prove it. Um, this game will allow you to do that, and we'll talk about all the intricacies. And it is a, it is a simple or complicated game, depending on how you want to play it. Uh, but certainly for the hardcore baseball fan that goes into massive withdrawal in the off season, this is the game for you. And um, you know, we certainly look forward. I wanted to have these guys on for quite some time. It's a definitely an, an, an addiction of mine and they even have an ios version of it now and uh you can take with you and uh yeah it's it's addicting so uh we'll talk to ootp and their folks uh next week as well as uh talk best baseball on behalf of ej and thanks again to our guest matthew Cerrone. until next week let's go mets 